0: Hello, everyone. This is episode 61 of the Travel Writing World podcast. Few conversations about Patrick Lee Fermor's book, A Time of Gifts, happen without mentioning Lori Lee's As I Walked Out One Midsummer Morning. Lee's book, also an account of a European walk, was published before Patty's book. They're similar, but they're <laughs> quite different. So on today's episode, Jessica Vincent joins me to talk about Lori Lee and his book. We also talk about gender representations in the book and the book's Enduring Appeal. All of that's coming up in the interview, but I want to hear from you. Have you read Lori Lee's book? And what are your thoughts? Please leave a comment on the show notes. Go to TravelWritingWorld.com and find the episode. In travel writing news, the Wainwright long list was announced last month, and I think their shortlist uh, announcement is due sometime in early August. I know the Wainwright Prize is one that celebrates nature writing, but there there is an overlap between nature writing and travel writing. I, I think on the the long list there are some titles uh, that illustrate this overlap, like uh, Anita Sati's "I Belong Here" and uh, Cal Flynn's "Islands of Abandonment." We we are rooting for these travel adjacent titles. Lucy Nathan of book Brunch notes that Manisha Rajesh just sold the rights to her forthcoming book. Tentatively called Midnight Express, a book about sleeper trains, and what she reports as a major deal. Again, another indicator that the the market for travel books is healthy, but also another illustration of how niching down and uh, you know focusing on a particular subject like trains in this case uh, can be helpful. More generally, uh, industry analyst Jane Friedman reports that sales of books in all categories have grown uh, some twenty percent year to date, uh, with you know, strong backlist sales in some categories. Um, the broader travel category, as we all know, saw like a major steep decline last year, but I'm speculating that guidebook sales made that number tank and that travel literature is also enjoying you know the rising tide like the other uh, categories. Hopefully, the book market will continue to be healthy, but I doubt these uh, massive increases will will sustain in the long term. And lastly, William Dalrymple has a collection of photographs in Grubner Gallery in London, running through July, I believe. So if you're in the area, you might want to check that out. In my personal update, uh, again, not much to report. Uh, I posted an article on TravelWritingWorld.com about 10 subgenres of the travel book. Uh, I'm not sure I like the the term subgenres. I don't think it's completely accurate here. Uh, I think it will do... You know, when I say subgenres, I'm I'm also thinking about uh, like flavors or kind of organizational approaches to travel books. But um, I guess subgenres works in this case. Anyway, check that out. Um, I also published a binaural field recording of a park in the Dominican Republic. There's also a video that I published along with it on YouTube. So if you want to check that out and listen to some ambient soundscapes, uh, you can listen and watch the video at JeremyBesetti.com. So it was great to hear from everyone over the last few weeks. Gitanjali writes, You're my unending resource for great travel books to keep us going until we can head out for our own adventures. Thanks for the comment, Gitanjali. We also got a couple of new five-star reviews. They're they're the kinds without the comments, which, fine, fine, fine. We'll take what we can get, but we like to read the comments uh, on the show. So please leave a review if you can, and... uh, Leave a comment I'll read it on the air. We also got a new patron. Thanks to Heinrich for supporting the podcast. So thanks for reaching out, everyone, and for supporting the show. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet me at Jeremy Bassetti, or you can leave a comment on the show at travelwritingworld.com and find the episode. While the show is free, it ain't cheap, so please consider telling your friends about the show, leaving a review on the Apple Podcast app or whichever podcasting app you use, or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month, less than a cup of coffee, at travelwritingworld.com support. So now, here is the interview. Welcome to the podcast, Jess.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be here.
0: So from time to time, I invite writers to talk about so-called classic travel books. And when I invited you, you suggested that we talk about Laurie Lee's travel memoir, As I Walked Out One Midsummer Morning. Um, And I'm excited to talk with you about this book. But before we do that, um, I was wondering if you could just give us a little uh, idea about who you are and and what do you do?
1: Yeah, so I am a travel journalist. I work with publications like National Geographic, BBC Travel, The Telegraph, The Independent, um, and some others. Uh, Pre-COVID, I'd spent the last... (laughs) Three years living out of a backpack, traveling through Central and South America, Europe and a little bit of um, Africa as well. Um, So it was really through traveling full time that I I fell into this career of freelance travel writing. And now I'm based in the UK while we wait out this pandemic. Um, And I haven't been able to travel very much as I used to, but um, my work is still very much focused on, on telling long form investigative travel stories you know that teach us something about a place um a cultural community that is rarely reported in mainstream media so that includes like lesser known or disappearing traditions um or profiling projects and people who are doing incredible things um around the world so yeah so, that, that's me
0: so not the uh, 10 best tequila drinks on the beach <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I do love tequila, but no, I try I mean we all we've all done those lists and uh-huh. you know, pay the bills. But um yeah, I'd really love really love those kind of mm. long Um, in-depth meaty travel stories if I can get them.
0: (laughs) Yeah but you've been keeping yourself uh, busy Uh, you have this wonderful Instagram live series where you interview other creative people in the travel space so photographers and other travel writers for example Um, tell us a little bit about this before we talk about the book like what is your username there and what are the details about your Instagram live talks?
1: Yeah so I started we're now on the 18th episode this yesterday I just recorded the 18th episode um and it really just started as a way to kind of give aspiring writers an insight in into the industry but also as a way to connect um with colleagues and stay connected over over covid Um, so yeah they they go live every week every Wednesday at 6 p.m Uh, my Instagram account is nomadatravel.travel. Uh, so all you have to do is just, um, click on my profile at 6 PM. We'll be there live. And we also upload, uh, those lives onto IGTV so you can catch up at any point. And we've had some incredible guests. We've had you know, Sebastian Modak, the 52 Places Traveller for the, the New York Times. Uh, we've had the editor at National Geographic Traveller sharing tips on how to pitch to Nat Geo. So we've had a real a real That's range great. of people. So I'd, I'd highly recommend you can catch up on all the episodes on my Instagram account.
0: And you said Nomada. matter with an a nomada travel. Yeah,
1: nomada travel. That's okay. it. N O M A D A dot travel.
0: Okay, and you've also been keeping yourself busy by putting together a or working with other organizations like the British Guild of, of Travel Writers to put together a Best British Travel Writing of the 21st Century Anthology. Can you tell us a little bit about this?
1: Yes and first of all congrats on saying that right that <laughs> the title is very is it's a bit of a wordy title yes so um we've got uh, an anthology coming out in March 2022 it's going to be a collection of 25 travel stories published in UK media in the last 20 years so a huge time frame um it's a celebration of travel a celebration of uh, travel writing as, as a craft, especially during this time, where uh, lots of travel writers haven't had any work. Um, so this is really kind of celebrating uh, travel writing as, um, as as a craft. So yeah, that's gonna that's gonna be published in March 2022, and we're currently looking for submissions, so stories to include in the in the book. Uh, you don't have to be British to to submit your work. Your work just has to have been published in UK media in the last 20 years. So uh, if you want more information about that, we're, we're um, accepting submissions right now, right up until the 14th of June. And all the information you need to submit is on the website. It's called bestbritishtravelwriting.com.
0: Okay. And this is in association with... The British Guild of Travel Writers, right?
1: Yeah. So okay. it's being published by uh, Summersdale Publishers. It's a UK um, publishing house and it's uh, in partnership with the British Guild of Travel Writers, okay. um, which is a community of over 300 uh, travel writers, photographers in the UK um, who or who write for UK media? So they um, they're on board with the project and they're supporting us very kindly. Um, and if you are a travel writer who writes for for UK media, I would recommend go and check out the BGTW. It's a great community.
0: Mm-hmm. And they they do have some. Uh, as just a side note, they do have some great uh, kind of like professional development type uh, webinars on Zoom. Say that
1: they do. It's
0: available. They're available to non-members for. A very small fee, but those have been very kind of stimulating um, and, and they're great. They're just all around great.
1: Yeah, they're, they're great. I think they're under 10 pounds. So really, mm. really affordable and on, on lots of different topics.
0: Yeah. Good. So now that we got all of that out of the way, uh, let's get into the book. Uh, you recommended that we speak about Lori Lee's as I walked out one midsummer morning, which is also kind of a mouthful uh, but it sounds <laughs> Let's nice. called
1: it as I walked out
0: <laughs> as I walked out okay um, so why did you suggest that we talk about this book?
1: yeah I, it's actually I'm surprised because that not that I've suggested it, but actually I hadn't read as I walked out until last year uh-huh. um, which as a travel writer, I think people might be surprised because it's such such a huge a huge book. And I, I was aware of Laurie Lee. Um, I've been aware of him for a long time because, um, in the UK, I think every school library in the UK, <clears throat> excuse me, has, um, sided with Rosie, a copy of mm-hmm. his first, um, autobiographical book. Um, cause as I walked out was the second in that, in that series of three autobiographical books. So, um, so I, I was aware of his work at quite a quite a young age. Um, but I didn't actually read as I walked out until last year when I was back home at my mum's house in Spain and, and she'd got a copy for her birthday. And as soon as she'd finished, um, obviously I recognized the name and, um, she told me briefly, it's about someone who walks, he, he walks through, um, through Spain. Mm-hmm. And obviously, um, I, I was in Spain at the time. I'm half Spanish. Um, and that, that was a big draw to me. So I read it cover to cover and, and I absolutely loved it.
0: Mm -hmm. You just mentioned that his earlier book, um, Cider with Rosie is in all of the libraries of, of schools. And as I read this book, what struck me was that it seemed to be like a coming of age story. You know, mm-hmm. something that I think a uh, a young adult, uh, especially a young male adult, um, <laughs> we can talk about <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. that, that, but um, it seems like a, a good story for, you know, a young adult, like trying to figure out what, what he or she wants to do in life, you know, um, it has that kind of... Uh, I guess naivety or this kind of youthful quality to uh, about it that just you know we're getting a little bit older but pulls us back to our <laughs> our youth in some way. I thought it was uh, very good uh, on that front.
1: Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Obviously, cider with Rosie is is. I mean, it is just childhood, isn't it? Yeah. It's so clever the way he, he, t- he kind of speaks from a child's um through a child's eyes. Um whereas this one, yeah, it's more of a coming-of-age book. Um, and you can definitely, I mean, the way he walks out of, even though he loves his home, this is what Laurie Lee in the UK is known for, the guy who kind of immortalized the um the British countryside, the English countryside. Um but then here he is. In as in as I walked out, um, this young man um, looking for adventure and wanting to walk away from this beautiful home that he'd grew up in and that he loves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of young people. That's why it still resonates with young people now, and it resonated with me because it's got that sense of wanting to break away from your roots and wanting to explore. um so yeah yeah definitely definitely know what you mean
0: which which is very interesting because the story happens in 1934 and this isn't published until 1969 I believe and Mm. just like his earlier book which is from a younger period in his life or an earlier period in his life was also published you know many many decades after that so it's interesting that he's able to to capture the spirit of youth uh, so well, even in his later years.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's such a skill. And I think I think his, his poetry background mm-hmm. really helps him with that because he can just, the way, the language he uses, he can really just, it, it's almost like he is there. And that's why he's such a great travel writer as well, because he can describe the most minute, of details, details that most of us wouldn't even notice. And, and he does it just with ease. And I mean, I'm not sure how much, sometimes I read, I read through this and I go, no way did you remember this? This is no (laughs) chance. Um, But it, it doesn't really matter, does it? The point is, is that he, he makes us feel like we're there and he struck and he strikes a chord with with young people and people of all ages, actually, um because he touches on those very human emotions that even if he wasn't even if he's not being truthful at all point at all times, if his memory isn't serving serving him well as well as it as well as he might want us to think uh-huh. it it's a powerful piece of writing because he's so good at describing how he feels, what he sees. And, and that's the power of this book, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. If I'm remembering it correctly, uh, I think Dervila Murphy uh, in a, I guess, a review of the book, or she was writing about the book. I, I'm going to scratch this out <laughs> out if it's completely <laughs> false, but um, I think she was reviewing the book and she brings this up. She says, it doesn't matter if you know, half of what he says isn't true because it's such a kind of powerful and beautiful beautifully written book
1: I haven't actually read that that sounds like I just copied her words I (laughs) haven't actually read that (laughs) okay that's that's really interesting
0: yeah I mean it's one of the perennial I guess conversations in in travel writing especially um, kind of the longer form book side of travel writing Um, to to what extent is all of this really 100% true Mm. and does that even matter if kind of the spirit of the the topic is 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 true right
1: yeah yeah and I I honestly I'm of obviously you there's a point if you're writing travel there has to be an element of truth of course you Mm -hmm. can't just lie through your teeth um but uh, me personally I think you are also you are also a writer, uh, and as a writer, you, you, you are allowed to be creative. You are a kind of artist, or we think we're artists. We like to, we like to act <laughs> as if we're artists. So there is an element of creativity there, and without that creativity, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be um, as exciting to read, I think, and sometimes you need that creativity in order to help people visualise mm-hmm. what you're seeing and what you're feeling.
0: Yeah, I agree. You'd mentioned that he's from the uh, countryside, the British countryside, and uh, he's from a place that many Americans uh, don't just kind of run of the mill tourist Americans like me, we wouldn't necessarily know about. Like he's from Cotswold. I I'm going to butcher this because it, 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 you pronounce it not as it is read or as it's written, but uh, Gloucestershire. He's,
1: Gloucestershire, yeah, 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 that's
0: right. <laughs> All right, he's from Gloucestershire and Cotswold, and in 1934, when he's 19, he kind of sets off to London on foot with a fiddle, and as you mentioned, travels through Spain from coast to coast. Um, but can you give us a sense of uh, what Cotswold is like? What is Gloucestershire like? What is this region like? And um, just to contextualize it for for people who may not know anything about it.
1: Yeah, so the Cotswolds is a protected area in mm. the southeast of England. It covers, I think, six counties. Um, it's an official area of outstanding natural beauty. So that's um, that's the, the equivalent of, of a national park in the in the US. You know, it'd okay. be um, it's it's officially protected, and I think it's been protected for fifty years. And actually, I read somewhere that the Laurie Lee and his family have a lot to do with that because they were very passionate about ensuring that the Cotswolds was protected and kept in, in, in the way that, that he describes it, you know, because he could see that with, with cars um, being invented and being used more in the thirties and forties, um, that, that these beautiful villages in England were going to change. So, it, and and it, to some extent, it has worked because uh, the Cotswolds is everything, or at least those protective parts is everything that Laurie Lee describes. More um, so, in, in Cider with Rosie, it's you know rolling green hills dotted with sheep and mm-hmm. clusters of those very famous honey coloured stone houses and medieval churches and tiny cosy pubs serving craft ales, you know, and, and steak and kidney pie. Um, <laughs> so during Lee's childhood, the Cotswolds was just the Cotswolds. They were just little villages, little chains of villages, sleepy, sleepy rural villages. Um, but now it's it's probably one of the most visited areas out, outside of London. They're hugely, hugely popular. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm sure with US tourists when the American tourists, when they come, they come over, they love they love the Cotswolds.
0: Hmm. I need a I need a visit there. I, I mean Yeah. I guess first-time travelers to London uh, or to, to to Britain would probably hit up one of the capital cities, and then if they're adventurous, they might kind of go off into the countryside. But I guess that's where you know the the magic happens. <clears throat> People love to visit Paris, but as soon as they go outside of Paris, for example, they you know learn another side of of the country and, and fall in love with it in ways that they weren't expecting. So it does sound very rural and uh, and kind of like a wonderful place. But if you loved it so much, like why did he want to leave? Do, did you get a sense of why he wanted to leave to just leave the area? Do, do we know why he left?
1: Hmm. That's, that's an interesting question. I think I don't, I don't know. I mean, I just got the sense just reading the book. Mm-hmm. I mean, without, without taking in sure. um, any kind of other context, just focusing on what you get from the book. For me, he was just a nineteen-year-old boy who had lived all his life in this tiny village, um, and he did love his home. We know that it was. It was. He, he has fond memories mm-hmm. of his childhood, as you say. But it gets to the point, and I think there's a line at the beginning, and I can't remember. I can't remember it off Bahan. I haven't written it down, but it's something along the lines. Along the lines of that, he felt that the streets were almost suffocating him. Oh, right. At that point. Mm-hmm. Do you do you remember that? I yeah. think there was something about they just felt they were they were narrowing in on him. And yeah. the way he describes it is beautiful. So I'm not gonna try and, yeah. and um paraphrase, but it was basically that that he feels suffocated and he sees that, you know, um when the when the girls look at him, Marry they, me, marry me, they
0: settle. huh? They say, Marry me, settle down. Yeah, yeah marry
1: yeah. me, settle down, exactly, exactly um and he doesn't want that he's not ready he's obviously got this adventurous spirit in him that um obviously lots of us travel writers travelers um can relate to where mm-hmm. you're getting to an age where people have certain expectations of you and as a as a kind of product of that you want to rebel and you want to walk away and see see what lies beyond beyond the village walls mm-hmm. so yeah
0: I know exactly what part of the book that you're talking about because I'd I'd circled it um just because you're right it's just beautifully beautifully written but kind of resonating in some way I can I come from a, a a small town so it kind of resonated mm-hmm. with me in, in 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 a special way but he was he was talking about the suffocating hills I guess and he'd mentioned walking down a street and as you said I'm going to butcher this I'm not going to You know, recount it as beautifully as he writes it, but something about walking on a road to London suffocated by the hills that has something to do with that, you know, the forces of tradition are forcing people to walk down the street to London and to leave the countryside. So I think here he's talking about modernity, the promise of big city life, of of uh, uh i don't know if action of of adventure in a big city i think that's the fuck up oh, sorry that <laughs> was gonna, that's the force uh, that that pushes him out
1: yeah yeah definitely that was it that was it i wish i'd written the quote down but um yeah that that's exactly it he's he's pushed out by by the pressures of of what's expected of him i think
0: okay i found it can i read it
1: yeah yeah okay basically. he says
0: um I was propelled of course by the traditional forces that had sent many generations along this road by the small tight valley closing in around me stifling the breath with its mossy mouth the cottage walls narrowing like the arms of an iron maiden the lo- local girls whispering marry and settle down
1: That's exactly yeah that's what that's what I remembered and it's 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 so interesting isn't it because this is this is someone in the 1930s writing this and although know, We're in a very different time now, but it's kind of the same. There's still the same expectations now of once you reach a certain age, it might not be 19 anymore, but let's say 30 now is kind of that Mm -hmm. age where as soon as you start approaching thirty, people start looking at you. Maybe not <laughs> people shouting in the street, going "Marry me," <laughs> as as Laurie apparently <laughs> apparently had in the streets, or the girls falling at his feet. But um, but it certainly is. You know, you've got grandparents and parents turning to you and sure. saying, "Hey, when are you going to marry?" And that that certainly for some of us makes us want to run away or, or walk walk. Across Spain,
0: <laughs> and walk across Spain. He does. Um, after a brief interlude in London, he stays there for I think about a year, um, and he meets a girl named one of his one of his many girlfriends, uh, a girl named <laughs> Cleo, who is half American or Latin American, and she's this kind of uh, evangelist for the Communists, I think. And he works in London as a construction worker for a year.
1: Mm. Yes, he does. He does, and that's that's an interesting an interesting part because some of some of the people he meets there as well is in uh, the construction workers. I think he said someone had was a murderer or a rapist, mm-hmm. or and he just kind of comments like it's nothing, you know. He just seems to be able to blend in into any group or community that he puts that he puts himself into and i think in london that's the first time uh, where we see that but he he carries that through all through spain where he can drop in in and find work somehow right. and and just just immerse himself into any kind of any kind of group of people and, yeah. and i think that's that's a real a real skill well
0: i think it's also and this is just a speculation, but I think it's a, a function of his class. I mean, he comes from a fairly rural area, I, I would assume uh, not very well to do. Um, and he's, mm-hmm. he can get on with, you know, the down and out, the, the people like him, the the, the poor. Um, he, he meets up with a, a guy called Alf, who is a professional hobo, I guess. Right. And <laughs> yeah. he rubs shoulders with these uh, people quite effortlessly effortlessly. And because he's a poet and because he's literate and, and very sharp and apparently good looking, he also can get on with the, the well-to-do. And I don't know, like I, I have this suspicion that, um, more, I guess, rich writers or, or someone. So Patrick Lee Firmer, another travel writer is essentially doing the same thing that he did. Um, he goes through, Mainland Europe, about the same time, and publishes the book, his book, A Time of Gifts, a few years after Laurie Lee does. And I believe Patrick Lee Firmer is of kind of a upper crust type uh, background. And I don't think he would, have, he would have been able to kind of rub shoulders with people the same way, you know, a function of class.
1: Mm, no, that's so true. Because Laurie Lee, I think he grew up in a family of is he the second
0: I don't youngest
1: know. of 12 I think it wow. was a huge huge family um and and yeah and he and he says he lived in they all kind of lived in this decrepit house uh-huh. they didn't have electricity at times they didn't have you know all these all these things and and he clearly he feels very comfortable um in in these situations but the, the most he kind of, he can slip in and out. And he, and he's very, he's, he, he says, I think somewhere in the book that he likes in a way, going to places where he doesn't have an identity. Mm-hmm. And I think that helps him a lot when he's interacting with people, because he kind of mirrors them. He doesn't have his own identity. So he can very well, he can fit in with whatever, whichever group he, he, he finds himself at that moment. He kind of, he, he listens and he observes and that I think people love mm-hmm. people love that you know wherever if you're in Spain or in london if if you've got someone who listens to you um and i I think I think that's what he does very well
0: right and I think it's a sentiment that many like solar travelers might understand like yes. <laughs> when you travel somewhere alone for the first time, you're like, all right, I'm a new person, I can invent my myself again. nobody <laughs> knows me they don't know my past and he does you're right he mentions that several times throughout the book he's born again or born anew I think he says
1: yes yes
0: I wanted to 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 circle back on what you said about the work thing and because this this is this is one of the the great things about this book is he takes with him his violin his fiddle and he uses that to make money right street performing
1: (laughs) amazing I know so so cool I mean (laughs) Could, could we do that now? I don't know. And, I, and actually a favourite part of my book, of, of the book, not my book, um, was actually at near the, it's at the end when he, it's in the, oh, it? I think the epilogue, um, where he's climbing um, the Pyrenees to get back into Spain. Mm. Um, and he says, oh, I can't believe I'm doing, it. he's something along, I'm paraphrasing, um, but I have none of the essentials, no food, no tent, um, no extra extra clothing to keep me warm. He's in, it's in the middle of the winter in Pyrenees. In the Pyrenees, um, snow up to his knees. Um, but he says, you know, but I do have my <laughs> violin and some books. Right. <laughs> That's all he had on him. Yeah. Um, and it goes just and and he said, I don't know. It's something along the lines of, I don't know why I chose to bring this, but it's just all I have in the world. Mm-hmm. So it just goes to show for him that is. That was all he needed. He had his books, um, his his pen and paper as well. He had in his rucksack to, to write his poetry and that violin to, to to earn money and to keep going. And I guess my version of that today is my laptop. Right. <laughs> I have my laptop in my bag, and that's kind of um, obviously very different, but that that same kind of mentality of all I all I need is what what's in my backpack. And I think we're kind of looping back to that now where we want to strip back and just take, take what we need to, to earn money um, and carry on traveling. Mm-hmm.
0: Stringed nomad. He was. Uh,
1: yes, <laughs> I know. I, I, I'm people still, still play music. I've seen people busking around the world doing it, but wow. he, that was impressive yeah. <laughs> how we managed to do that for so long.
0: You'd, ask, uh, you'd asked if we could do that now. And um, when I first read this book, it was a couple of years ago in the summer. So I came to it late like you. And I, of course, I, I heard his name before, but what kind of pushed me to read it was a British writer named Alistair Humphreys who wrote a book called My Midsummer Morning, which is pretty, pretty well received. And he basically follows in the footsteps of Laurie Lee, <laughs> takes a violin with him, and tries to to busk around Spain and, and make money. Have you have you read this?
1: No, I haven't. I haven't, but I've heard of Alistair Humphreys. Yeah,
0: he does that. But I think that one of the d- differences between Laurie Lee and Alistair Humphreys is that Alistair doesn't know how to play an instrument. <laughs>
1: <laughs> ah, slight, slight problem.
0: <laughs> so he's learning on the go. But um, from what we understand, uh, Laurie Lee does know how to play the fiddle fairly well, but he's just never done it in the middle of the street asking people for money. So there's a lot of, I guess, commentary on the anxiety of performing on the street, learning new songs that village people want to hear. And um, kind of a in, very interesting, like, anthropological account of who pays well and who doesn't pay well and what cities pay well and what cities don't pay well. You know, (laughs) it's kind of interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting when he says, yeah, a certain time of day or, um, yeah, certain kind of person Uh will, will, will just walk past some, I said, people in suits, you know, the people that have the most money are less likely to pay. I think was that, is that right? Am I remembering that right? (laughs) They would just kind of hurry past um, whereas it was the lower classes, and surprisingly, those that had less money would would sit there and watch him and, and pay. So yeah, that was really mm-hmm. really interesting. And he also that teaches him a lot and uh, about just being on the streets as well and meeting people. Because I know some that there's a scene where where someone approaches him and says, "Hey, by the way, you're doing it all wrong," <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, and he kind of becomes. I know this is only he's talking about the violin, but it kind of becomes something about being street savvy, you know, and street wise. He's he's this guy that's, you know, hasn't left his his Cotswold village before and here he is, you know, being being taught how to earn money on the streets.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah that that is uh quite interesting. And he, he mentioned even uh, learning how to play songs that made people feel guilty, or <laughs> like I, I guess like sad songs, <laughs> or saw, songs that were introspective, or, or something. But certain types of songs would would uh, arouse a certain uh, a certain generosity in, 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 in men who had something I don't know they felt guilty about, and they would toss a few pennies into the into the hat.
1: Yeah, he really took this job very seriously. <laughs> he, he looked at his target audience well. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So another thing that was interesting is, um, you know, the, the reasons why when he was in London, he decided to go to Spain. He was at, uh, I think he was on a construction job and it was coming to the to an end and he was on top of the roof. And he recounts just kind of looking around, you know, the horizon and saying, I can go anywhere when this job is done. I can go to Italy, I can go to Greece, I can go to France, I can go anywhere. But I'm going to go to Spain Why? (laughs) Because he knew how to say, "May please have a glass of water." In Spanish.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I (laughs) do. We buy that. Do we buy that? (laughs) I don't know. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? I mean, it's he and Laurie Lee knows he he knows how to make Mm -hmm. you know people laugh in that way. He knows that's gonna gonna kind of you're going surely not that's all you know and that's why why you're choosing it um but i think i i have a hunch that there was something that drew him to spain he's obviously because because he he takes to it so quickly i feel like there is um that draw somewhere i I, Mm -hmm. i think there must be more than more than that but um yeah it's so interesting that (laughs) <laughs> he, he says he just he's just gonna go there because he knows that one line <laughs> um it's there but actually that line does become quite important because he's thirsty pretty much throughout right <laughs> so and he goes um, he goes in the summer um, that, he goes to spain and- i wonder if he thought about that about that afterwards but definitely i mean the brits they love spain anyway <laughs> so um i think i think he wanted to go there for a while
0: right well let's talk well two points here um he goes to Spain in in summer, which uh, we both know is is not always pleasant, especially when you're walking through the uh, meseta in the, in the middle of Spain, especially you go down into the south of Spain, it gets quite warm. Um, so that phrase is very important to him. But also, this point that you'd made that Spain is very, I guess, sp- special for the British. I wonder. I wonder if we could uh, talk about that, like. Um, stereotypically from my perspective, I, I seem to think that British have this, you know, this fantasy about Spain, about the beach, about the sun, about the warm. Yeah,
1: it's interesting, isn't it? I think if, if you asked my grandparents on my, on my British side and my mum's side, they're, they're, they're from, from the UK, who would have visited Spain, let's say for the first time in the eighties, um, they, they they would say there was something quite exotic about visiting Spain, you know, particularly in the South of Spain, you've got the Moorish influence in the architecture, in the food and the dance. You've got the intense heat, as you, as you mentioned, and a summer that lasts six, sometimes seven months now with, um, with global warming Um, that, and then that dry desert like landscape in the South. So it's so different to the UK, which is green, wet, uh, cold. Um, yet you can get there in two hours on a plane or or walk there as Laurie Lee takes. It would take right. a little bit longer, but it is relatively close. Yeah, it feels like a whole different world. And obviously, in the in the 80s, 70s, 70s, 80s, 90s, Spain was still um quite poor. Right. Um, it was still Struggling um, uh, financially, economically compared to the UK, so I think there was kind of this. It 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 was it was close to home, but it, it felt like a like a like a different world. Um, and I think there is kind of Spain has been exoticized um, by by British people, and of course, I mean we live. We live in a country where it rains right. a lot, so that that's that's going to be a key a key selling point. Right. But yeah, I think that continues to be um, an intoxicating allure for Brits to go to go to Spain. And for me, I'm half Spanish, so and I, I grew up in Spain. I was there till I was ten years old. I was born in the Canary Islands, but I then I, I, my mum and I moved to to mainland Spain. I was three years old, and we stayed there till I was ten. So I've I've never seen Spain as this exotic place. Right. I just saw it as Spain. Right. Um, so it's quite, it's quite, uh, yeah, it's quite unusual to hear my parents speak of it. And my grandparents, sorry, or other people in the UK, um, particularly mm-hmm. the older generation speak of it in that way.
0: Right. I wonder if there's an analog here with the United States and their infatuation with maybe the Caribbean or Mexico, yeah. Cancun is, you know, the place to get away, the place that it's cheap, the place that it's kind of different, not too far. a uh, place to go on holiday to, to forget about the worries. I feel like Spain, southern France, portions of Italy have that in Greece have that same kind of connotation to it. And you're right, like my mom is my mom is Dominican of Spanish descent and I never grew up there, but of course she lives there now we go visit her and we have family there and, you know, to, to have people or to hear people, Americans talk about the Dominic- Dominican Republic, um, in this kind of exotic way kind of makes me turn my head a little bit because for me, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of not home, but it's where my family live, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. Different. It's just the Dominican Republic for you. It's not, yeah, that's, it's interesting. it is, it is a strange, a strange kind of tug and, yeah, push and pull, you know, so you, you don't know, you kind of, you understand both sides because you, you've you experienced mm-hmm.
0: both. Yeah. But Laurie Lee mentions, uh, towards the end of the book somewhere in the end of the book. Um, it, so this is the problem, I guess, in his story happening in the thirties and then writing it in the sixties is we don't know, you know, what idea belongs to what time period, but he had mentioned that, in the story in the '30s, that when he was growing up, he had kind of like a fantasy of walking through an orange grove, you know, on a dirt road and going into Seville. Right? It's like there's this fantasy mm-hmm. or this kind of cliche about Spain that also propelled him there, that also brought him there. So I don't know if that's a fantasy from the '30s or a fantasy from the '60s. Uh, but if it's from the '30, then if it's from the '30s, then. You know what we're saying about the, the the allure of Spain must have been a thing for British back then as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's it's interesting to see how just how how far how far back it is, and obviously in the thirties um, there wasn't that much, to, what, barely any. I think uh, Lee, Laurie Lee says, you know, I was one of the few few travellers here, foreign travellers. Um and it wasn't, I think, travel to Spain or just abroad in general didn't really um begin to happen, I think, till the seventies in in the UK. So it was much, much later. But it's interesting that those ideas were already already forming um, probably from the literature that, that we were reading and right. the, the programs that we were watching. That's already been embedded for, for decades.
0: Mm-hmm. I I did uh, some of my graduate coursework on Spain and, you know, one of the, um, I don't remember exactly where I read this, but, you know, uh, Franco uh, in the 70s had this program uh, from the Ministry of Tourism designed to attract British dollars specifically to the southern coast, right? So Costa del Sol, the Mediterranean, and, you know, invested a lot of money there to attract foreign, particularly British, uh, tourists. But you're right. I think the literary tradition of people, despite Lori Lee saying not many people went, which is probably true, but there, there were some, uh, educated, uh, British travelers and also French travelers that, you know, wandered throughout Spain and, and, and wrote about them that certainly he would have known about, right? Gerald Brennan went to Andalusia. He went to Granada, um, spent some time there, wrote a great book um, about the region. Some of the romantic writers of the 19th century, French writers went to Spain and wrote about it. And so someone as educated and interested as, in, into poetry as Laurie Lee, we would assume that he would have encountered those works and those would have kind of fed the imagination about that land.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. That's why I don't buy that um, he made the (laughs) decision on a whim, um, because he knew um, the Spanish for um, "how can I um, can I have a glass of water, please." Um, I think he'd been dreaming about those orange groves for uh, quite a while. Oh,
0: and don't we all dream about them, man? Yes. Uh, Okay, so um, where does this take the take us? Like for you, I just wanted to ask. Like, we're both coming to this book kind of later in life, right? Recently, I should say, we're, we're both reading this within the last couple of years. Um, and I have some opinions about things, but I wanted to ask you first, like what like works about this book in your opinion and what doesn't, doesn't work about this book?
1: Yeah, so- it almost feels like a sin saying what doesn't work about Laurie Lee's work because he's such, you know, he's such a legend. Um, And, but, but yeah, I'll get, I'll get, I'll mention first what, what I think works. Obviously Mm -hmm. it's the language for me in, in, in this book. I mean, he, he, Laurie Lee manages to say in just under 200 pages, I think it is um, what most of us would take, i don't know 400 500 pages lifetime of pages <laughs> um he he's he's so clever with his, with his use of of language that every every word seems to have a purpose and i think you know it, it, all those details and i've mentioned it before you know those fleeting moments that many of us will miss he manages to to capture and i think he does that best in this book in as i walked out he does it in cider with rosie as well but particularly in this one that really shines through and i think that's why he it, he work, it works so well as a travel writer um because he he captures those those small moments i also really love having grown up in spain i think his descriptions of of Food and and but more more specifically the bars in Madrid and Seville on, where he goes it? in to take shelter um, from the heat. Um, you know those those descriptions of sizzling hot prawns and giant um, um, uh, squid rings, calamaries. You know yeah. um, it, that to me, even though he's writing from a very different time period, a very different Spain to what I where I grew up. It's it, it still feels familiar. It feels familiar to the Spain that I grew up in, and that's, that's quite something. And I think that for me, because Spain basically, it, Spain is lots of things, but to me, Spain is, is food. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what I remember as a child. It's the, the images of people eating and drinking and having building those connections with family and friends around the table. And that's how Laurie Lee finds a lot of his connections through food and through drink in these bars. Um, and that that kind of reminded me of of the Spain that, that I remembered in when I grew up there in the 90s, early 2000s. So so yeah, that that I really enjoyed, even though he's talking about a Spain on the brink of civil war, there is still something there that that continues to this day. Um, but then on, on the flip side, what should we talk? Do you want to talk about that first or should I go on straight on to what I don't, what I didn't like?
0: What works for me is basically what works for you. The the language is sharp and precise. And I love what you said about the the descriptions of the bars. Like I, I, I remember highlighting the part where he talks about the dusty bottles hanging. (laughs) I mean, that's like spot on and it's amazing how, how much hasn't changed. But for me also, um, what worked, and this is a f- function of the language as well, but it's is the pacing, you know, it's mm-hmm. uh, well-paced, I mean, a- as you as you mentioned, it's 200 pages, around 200 pages, and it's a two years condensed in 200 pages, and it just skips along. And there's no dry asides, there's nothing unnecessary, the language is so precise and moves so forward that you can't put the book down.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so impressive. I just think about the times where I've got to write a two thousand word article about a five day <laughs> hike I did in Mexico, and I struggle, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, and then I read these pages, and I think he he just does it so effortlessly. It doesn't feel like he's rushing right. either. Right. That's the skill. He, it's, you think, oh, you know, he's got to. He wants to keep the, the the story brief and to the point. So you might feel like you're rushing and skipping over things but it doesn't because every word is so rich that, um, it, it, he makes it work. And that's why he's, he's the great writer that he is, I guess. Right. He
0: makes it, he makes it look easy and effortless. And I think that's, yeah. that's the mark of does. skill. Yeah. What about, um, perhaps some of the things that didn't sit well with you?
1: Yeah. And I think that's a better way to put it. Actually, Jeremy saying what didn't sit well, rather than what doesn't work. Um, because I think what I'm about to say is probably more of a, um, represents probably more his time rather than um, what him him as a writer, I don't know, but his representation of women, and you've touched, touched upon that at the beginning, but um, that made me feel, uh, obviously as a woman reading this um, in the 21st century, Uh, that obviously doesn't align with the the view I have of women. Um, Women are very much present in all of Lee's work. He clearly loves women very much, (laughs) Um, but their roles are very one-dimensional. I think there are essentially two types of women in in Lee's book. One is, is the prostitute, and two is this very kind of pious housewife caring for her husband, and... It's clear, you know, that what Lee finds sexual gratification from women, he kind of seeks comfort and solace in women. But when it comes to needing friendship or a mentor or a guide or someone to confide in, he always, he always turns to men. Um, there's never this woman that he even, he just sits down and talks to. They're very much a commodity. right? Um, and that, that grinded on me um after a while but of course it is it's this is a different time period um one example that really shocked me um was a scene at the end of the Valladolid chapter where um Lee walks in on a woman beating up her husband because he was trying to, we don't know whether it was rape, their young daughter, or just sexually abuse, or another form of sexually sexual abuse. But, that I mean, that in itself is incredibly shocking, and he just kind of mentions it very, very quickly. Right. Um, and then moves on. Um, but the most shocking part is that instead of comforting the woman or the child who's just been abused, the young girl, Lee comforts the man. Right. I mean, he carries him to the bedroom he washes he washes his face um so he's all he's all bloody um and he covers with him a co- uh, covers him with with a coat and yeah he, he he puts him to to bed as if he's almost mothering him and and he just kind of reflects on the misery and injustice of the world and that that was shocking to me i i, I couldn't i couldn't get over that bit
0: right no, I read that as definitely. I read that as um, a, a rape, where the father is trying to yeah. rape the daughter. I mean, I think hmm. I think that's the way to read that. Um, when I was reading this, I noticed that he was uh, kind of representing a, a Spanish, a Spaniard in a certain way, either man or woman, man or woman. Um, he's exoticizing them. He's you know, he, he even mentions that the, their Arab faces and their red and savage mouths, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, he
0: writes about men in, in, in this very kind of like drunken or violent state. And at, women, as you mentioned, either in kind of like a motherly way or also a very pious and religious uh, way. Mm-hmm. So there's these like kind of broad strokes of the brush here and stereotyping kind of the exotic Spanish character in a way that, um, might be a function of the time, but certainly doesn't sit well, uh, when you're reading it in 2021. Mm,
1: Definitely, definitely. It's yeah, that was, that was, that was pretty, pretty shocking to Mm -hmm. me. Um, I mean, uh, you know, I can't, you kind of, you expect women to be, um, to not be this central character if it's a man walking through Spain (laughs) in the civil war in the thirties, you know, you, you, I, you know, I'm not naive and I thought, Oh, there's going to be this, you know, heroine here saving the day. (laughs) Um, but it was, it was just this real disregard and the way he kind of, it was always about, um, a kind of this comradeship, but just amongst men. And when, when this rape takes part, Mm -hmm takes place the the way he he just kind of he turns immediately to help the man yeah. and that was yeah that was quite
0: i didn't think about um, that before
1: that stayed yeah but, did you not see it like that no well
0: i mean now that you mentioned that yeah that's it's, it's shocking but i that that part didn't cross my mind i think that might just be a function function of me being a man than anything um Mm. I, I thought I thought of it was oh here's uh another scene depicting kind of the Spanish the savage Spanish character the violent incestuous drunken Spaniard um mm. but now that you mention that you're right it's it's fucked up <laughs> that-
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly that it's so fucked up and that is that is the truth because I, that's interesting that you say that because my boyfriend read it and he and he said the same he went well I think he's yeah he said the same he didn't really notice that he went immediately to the man um, but I think yeah, as a woman reading that immediately my instinct was to go over to the mother and give her a big hug, you right, know right. and and tell her it's gonna be okay, <laughs> and that yeah that just yeah. that just really I, I, it's been on my mind um for the last for the last year, Jeremy, <laughs> what have you done <laughs> um so yeah, this is um it's good to talk it out. <laughs> yeah.
0: Anyway, uh, I promise not to keep you for too long and we've been just chatting away. Um,
1: I know, it's gone so quick. <laughs> it's gone so quick. I haven't had a chat about a book like this since I was at university. So it's, it's lovely. It's yeah, so it's nice. Yeah, it's good.
0: Um, well, um, let's kind of wrap this up here. I don't want to give away the ending. And in my in my opinion, like the ending is just fantastic. As you mentioned earlier, he goes, he leaves Spain because of the civil war but he returns to spain um in the middle of winter and he's crossing the pyrenees with his violin again um but i thought the end was just fantastic kind of cliffhanging uh, cliffhanger of, a, of an ending that wants me to read more
1: i don't know if you felt yeah. that way too yeah yeah it's a, and and i was quite not nervous but um yeah, I didn't know how I would have ended this book. Um I was kind of hesitant to, to get to the end to see how he was going he was going to finish this. Um but that kind of dot 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 it and I don't normally like these dot 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 endings cuz I always think, "Oh, okay, like this <laughs> feels the like" Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I want. It feels like kind of Netflix, you know, see uh, episode where you have to watch the other one, even though it's three a.m. in the morning. But but it works. It does work really well in in this one. And I haven't read the next book, but I will. I have ordered it, so Mm -hmm. I'm I'm looking forward to reading that.
0: I think there's a a lesson here in in terms of uh, writing a book like this um, that that I learned and. know, the way that his narrative isn't so rigid to the chronology, like he's, you know, again, this is like two years condensed into 200 pages, and he doesn't care about lapses or gaps in time. It's just, Mm -hmm. he doesn't try to justify it. He just moves the narrative along. And, you know, I think there's something there, like, I don't know about you, when I'm writing, I'm, I, I tend to... Try to fill in the gaps. Do you know what I mean? Does is that making
1: any sense again? Yeah. Like yeah, it's so true. And you and you feel as if the reader won't understand what you're right. what you mean. Exactly. Or like the reader won't won't have caught up with where you are in your storyline. Um, that's so true. And I think that's that's kind of a sign of just a very confident writer, someone who's just writing because he wa- that's the way he wants to write. And that, that takes a lot of confidence. Um, and he, he does have almost annoying am- annoying amounts of confidence, well, verging on cocky, actually. <laughs> <laughs> he's quite, he's so, so confident. He, at least he comes across it in, in the book. And I think he almost has, you can tell he has, has that same confidence that he does kind of walking through Spain as he does writing. It's, it's, I wish I could write like that. <laughs> I wish I had that confidence. It's, it's, um, yeah,
0: really, really powerful. Yeah. Ditto there. I think that's a good good place to, to end this talk. So I re- look, I really enjoyed chatting with you about uh, his book and, and it was just fun. And close us out, let us know, remind us again where we can find you on Instagram.
1: Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram. Uh, my handle is at nomada, tr- dot travel that's no Nomadter N O M A D A. matter Travel. Um I also have a website, it's Jessica G Vincent at um no, that's not at Outlook.com, that's my email. <laughs> um, Jessica G Vincent.com. That's my um yeah, my website where you you can see my work on there and get in touch if if you have any questions. Great,
0: right. I'll put those links in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Great, thanks so much Jeremy.
0: You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at TravelWritingWorld.com support.